Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Time for Tell Me Why with Graham Finlay. Today's question is What is the responsibility to protect? Graham joins us now in News Talk. So, what is that? It's an emerging or, or new international norm, which sounds very fancy. But, you know, basically, um, the old norm in the international community about around sovereignty was that all states were equal and non-intervention was the norm. That's that's we should avoid intervention unless there's a threat to international peace and security. It's in okay. the, the U.N. Uh, charter. Right. And um, for decades this was more or less the, the the going thing. You know, India, when there was a massive exodus of refugees from, from what was East Pakistan, described that as a threat to East, international peace and security and tried to get the UN to intervene. Uh, and um, the UN said, nope, nope, it's, uh, it's the internal affairs of a sovereign state. Nothing to, nothing we can do. And, and so in, India took things into its own hands eventually um, and was condemned for it. You know, because it was it was intervening in in a sovereign state mm. in what was seen as its internal matters, uh, but through a sort of process of of the international community screwing things up, uh, which is pretty much the main story of international relations, uh, they came to think that this emphasis on sovereignty and non intervention wasn't really working out. Yeah, and, and, and it, we mean things like Rwanda. Exactly. So, so, and they'd been sort of creeping up to more intervention anyway. You know, they'd say, well, you we can intervene in Somalia because there isn't a state there. So mm. that's okay, right? Uh, but there was also changing public opinion. People felt, you know, we can't look at these atrocities being committed in other countries um, and and just stand idly by. You know, we mm. seem to, we have, and I think a lot of us have to think through exactly how this works because this can look pretty demanding. But we have responsibilities certainly as states or as the international community, but maybe even as individuals to those people. And, you know, I teach human rights at UCD, and and the theory of what basic rights require of us requires that we respect other people's rights, that we protect them from violations of their rights, and if we don't fail to do that, then to directly fulfill people in their enjoyment of rights. And that includes food and, and shelter and water as much as it is physical security. And that became the going theory of what human rights meant. And and it's been written right into international human rights documents as, as the duty to respect, protect, and fulfill people's human rights. That duty falls mainly on states, but all of us have some kind of relationship to it, at least in that way. And, and maybe a responsibility to ask our state to do something. And publics were doing so in the 90s. And then we had Rwanda and Srebrenica, where the UN failed in the case of Rwanda to intervene, uh, and in, with which a horrendous genocide which led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and in 1995, failed to protect uh, the Bosnian uh, mm. men and boys, especially, but the whole community in Srebrenica. And, and then, in an overreaction to their failure to do that, um, NATO conducted the illegal intervention, but moral in some people's eyes, of Kosovo in 1999. And so Kofi Annan, who had been the person who was supposed to respond to Rwanda and I think felt pretty guilty about how that had worked out, um, really led uh, sort of under the auspices of my native Canada, which is strangely in the news. Uh, it's actually yes. really weird to see people. Because <laughs> you're all COVID deniers, apparently. Yeah. Starmer <laughs> and things like that. Anyway, Canada developed the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty, which was supposed to think about how we could do this better as an international community. And they came up with the responsibility to protect, which is a genuinely interesting document, right. which radically reinterprets sovereignty, which is no longer the right of states to do pretty much what they like within their own borders, which always was a bit of an exaggeration. But anyway, uh, 
but it turns it into uh, a responsibility on the state's part to protect its citizens and pretty much anybody subject to its power. And if it's unwilling or unable to do so, then the international community has the responsibility to protect those people. Now, that is a recipe for intervention. Yeah. And and has been used as such in, in recent times. And now, uh, is that the only set of criteria, as, as you've described there? It, it, it doesn't become more granular than that. And because you could say... What is protect? Well, protect from what? Is right. it from, you know, is it from death? Is it from a bit of sarcasm? You know, <laughs> there's a whole range of things. Yeah, that's a really good point. So human rights violations are, are really interesting. And there's a lot of really interesting philosophical talk about what's a human rights violation. If I, yeah, if I engage in sarcasm with you, is that a violation of your rights, right? It may hurt, mm. you know, you know, because I'm sure it you does. care deeply what <laughs> I think about you. But, you know, is it a human rights violation? No, probably not. And And even so, we might think of things which are, impose on our human rights, you know, which nevertheless falls short of a violation. So it's usually used to refer to mass crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, mass mm. atrocities, widespread murder, right, and things like that. But it has been applied to things which are equally bad, like mass starvation, mass uh, lack of shelter, mass death from from all sorts of other things. And some of my more bloodthirsty colleagues in the human rights community really want to invoke, at a sort of the heyday of the responsibility to protect, really wanted to invoke it, um, you know, just about anywhere. And the most interesting case is in Myanmar, where there was a cyclone Nargis, which hit Myanmar, and Myanmar was denying humanitarian organizations access to Myanmar, and it wasn't helping its own population much yeah. either. And so people have said the responsibility to protect arises there as well. But for the most part, it's the kind of atrocities and genocide which get the international community's attention. Yeah. Now, to, to, is there a set of rules there? Like, does the Security Council oh, have to sign off on this? Or there's something lots of, of that rules, nature? and it's, right. a, it's quite a complicated document. So one is, you know, the Security Council has to sign off on interventions for them to be legal mm. uh, because they have to be uh, approved by the Security Council. And that's actually where this doctrine ended up in the in the way the General Assembly ratified it. But the initial document said that, you know, if the Security Council is not doing its job and it consistently fails to do its job, mm. you know, uh, then the General Assembly and even maybe regional organizations like NATO or the European Union or the, you know, w- you know, Eastern African Union or East African Union or whatever can can take a role because the view was there wasn't enough intervention. Yes. Uh, you know, actually, Louise Arbour, the former High Commissioner for Human Rights, said that failing to to intervene to stop human rights violations was itself a human rights violation, which shows how this ethics can sort of expand our responsibilities in ways we might find exaggerated, right? I don't Mm. feel like my failure to intervene is necessarily in itself a violation. Anyway, um, so, but the the, the General Assembly in its wisdom thought that a Security Council sign-off should happen. And so it was kind of an ethos for the great permanent five powers that they should abstain where their national interests were not involved. Now, I think what we've seen from the great powers is their national interests are involved everywhere. Yes. <laughs> uh, but they gave it a try in, in Libya, in, 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 in the Libyan intervention, and China and Russia abstained, and Na- eventually NATO took over that intervention. And that intervention um, went so well yes, that people are unlikely to invoke uh, the responsibility to protect 
anytime soon. Uh, and that be, it's because it be, went from a humanitarian mission to a regime change mission, right, mm-hmm. uh, led by NATO with the truly grisly death of, of, of Muammar Gaddafi uh, in the end. And so there are lots and lots of rules surrounding interventions and just war. You're supposed to do this justly, so you have to have the right intention, hard to gauge. You know, you, know, mm-hmm. you can't just willy-nilly kill non-combatants, but it has to be proportionate to the threat. You have to see... Um, you have to use force as a last resort. All of these rules of just war, which are all deeply problematic, you know, like, well, really? Should we just wait until every last diplomatic effort has been has spun out? You know, because that's a real a yeah. murderer's charter. Could you, oh God, there's somebody, I mean, could you argue that the, the, the U.S. just pulled out of Afghanistan, left behind tens of thousands of people that they'd promised safe passage to? So they failed in their responsibility to protect there, could you argue? That is, I mean, there's even more complicated things around who is actually in charge of a particular country. And, of course, in Israel's Palestine, this becomes really, really technical about, you know, is Israel occupying the Palestinian territories or not, right? Uh, and and I'll leave it to the lawyers to, to fight that over that one. Again, you know, in theory, the Afghan government was in charge, right? And, mm. and the U.S. just had well, a massive I mean, military yeah, presence. Right, right. Yeah. I know. Right? <laughs> right. And, a period and, where there really I mean, wasn't one. Certainly, currently, I mean, the Taliban's um, actions uh, would rise to the level of, of, of the kinds of violations which would possibly give rise mm. to the responsibility to protect. So would China's actions in Xinjiang, right? The Uyghur genocide. Yeah. And which, when I say genocide, I think the best case you could make for that is that they are seem to be preventing births within the group, which is part of the gen- definition of genocide. But, you know, that w- would, in theory, justify an intervention. But one of the rules of just war theory is you have to have a reasonable prospect of success, uh, which right. is not really <laughs> there in the Chinese case. And uh, that does in no way diminish the seriousness of what's going on in China. So... What I'm looking for for the next big thing for the responsibility to protect is Ukraine, because uh, Putin loves the, the the responsibility to protect. When he was nominally prime minister and Medvedev was, uh, you know, nominally the president, <laughs> the uh, there was the 2008 Georgia War, which um, I think is a real model for what might happen in the Ukraine. Uh, because there was, you know, some flashpoints. I mean, George, the government of Georgia was a bit reckless here and actually thought that NATO and the West would back them up, um, which which failed to happen just yeah. to give the ending away. But, uh, you know, they responded in certain ways to provocations in South Ossetia, which had been an autonomous de facto region of, 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 of their territory because Russia had been propping up these separatist regions. Um, anyway, um, the Russian uh, used this as an excuse to um, basically invade South Ossetia and then start shelling Georgia and seizing Georgian territory, basically to sort of teach Georgia a lesson. And they invoke the responsibility to protect, not in the sense that the human rights, uh, just like we protect the human rights of anyone anywhere, you know, are, are, are being violated, but the rights of Russian citizens are being, uh, and Russians are being violated. And, you know, under the Russian constitution, we have a responsibility to protect them. So it's a sort of nationalist reason to mm-hmm. version of the responsibility to protect, which the R2P super fans, and they are out there, are constantly saying, well, that is not how you use the responsibility to protect. But anyway, it was a short sort of war, which really did teach Georgia its place in the international spheres. <laughs> and um, South Ossetia remains um, even more independent, frankly, to this day. Yeah, given that there are so many... Um people of Russian descent are in so many countries around Russia, they could invoke that 
with any of them. And really. they will. And and that's sort of, I mean, again, the playbook's right there for Ukraine. You've got these breakout uh, republics of, of, of Luhansk and Donetsk. Mm. And, you know, they're Russian-speaking predominantly. I mean, the Ukrainian-Russian cultural, national, linguistic intermelding is really incredible. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, even more so maybe than, than Georgia. But But they're all former Soviet republics, so... They've, they've, they've got all these links going back mm. before in the 90s when they all became independent. But, you know, what people who are really critical of, of R2P, which is its short form, which you must use because it's so gangsta, but um, is is that it really destabilizes things and that any, you know, it's from this even flat, nominally equal sovereignty of states, you have the who can do the most to promote human rights when they feel like doing it. Uh, yes, kind of yeah. model, which means that people with really big armies are are much more likely to to invoke it and, and do whatever the hell they want, right? So China, when it in you know in terrible violations in Tibet, it's always about the sort of undemocratic nature of the lamas uh, and their rule in Tibet prior to the Chinese retaking of Tibet, which they saw as their sovereign territory. Right. So it's so. So apart from unintended consequences, this can be used all over the world in very bad faith by all sorts of actors. Absolutely, like all international norms. Uh, and, and so, I mean, I think we do have to be cautious really about invoking this, partly because it, it does seem to erect human rights into the only currency for um, us understanding the world and, and evaluating situations which leaves no room for self-determination. And people who are pushing the norm of the old one of non-intervention um, say, look, you know, what's happening in, in various places, including Ukraine, right, um, is is self-determination of, of a people. It's just really messy. But really bad consequences fall from, follow from, from intervening in all but the, the worst cases, the mm. ones that famously shock the conscience of humanity. Now, humanity's conscience is not as shockable as, as people might have hoped. But, yeah. you know, so it's a, it's a, it's a problematic uh, sort of um, norm. And I think if you compare it to Russia's seizing of Crimea, I think everybody agreed that was a bad thing except for Russia because, uh, and, you know, there's stooges in Crimea, because it really did violate just about every aspect of, of international law, which was maintaining a stable international order. Yeah. There's, well, it just strikes me that, given that you mentioned Libya, Libya right now is filled with prisons of people who were uh, trying to get to Europe, migrants trying to get to Europe, who've been imprisoned, they're murdered, they're raped, they're treated appallingly, and the European Union pays for all that. Absolutely. So, I, I could go on at length and have actually to the faces of members of the External Act, um, Action Service of the European Union. Uh, yes, it's a horrendous violation of human rights, which our tax euro are paying for. I mean, there's no other way to put it. They're, they're handing people back to pirates and terrorists who, who then exploit them and sell them into slavery. It, it could not be worse. And it's a very difficult situation. But even, you know, the UN High Commission for Refugees uh, is not, uh, uh, you know, um, exempt from blame here. And Sally Hayden's reporting, I have to say, on this has been terrific in, in the Irish Times and mm -hmm. elsewhere. So, no, again, that's a case for a sort of re-intervention. And, and one of the tricky things about this whole self-determination angle is, well, do people who find themselves as refugees or non-citizens of the states, do they have the same say? And that pushes us towards the human rights approach, which is that it doesn't matter whether these people are a member of the nation, whatever that is, and or the polity or the community, you know, you can't treat people in certain ways. 
And if the conditions in Libya become so horrible, some kinds of interventions seem to be required, and you certainly shouldn't enable them. But we should remember that interventions can be, you know, less of tanks and boots on the ground. It can be diplomatic sanctions, economic sanctions, any kind of criticism and any kind of sanction brought to bear to, to change what's going on inside a country. But I think it's very important that we take a look at a human rights set, a set of human rights violations which are happening on our doorstep to people who are basically the victims of this statist approach to the world that you know human rights are first and foremost enforced and you know protected by states uh, and it's really hard to think your way out of it that's why refugees and migrants cause problems for our human rights system because we yeah. really like them to stay put but the fact that we're enabling it i think is the worst part yeah given the <laughs> In the conversation we've just had about R2P, there's, uh, there's so many, it comes in with so many cynical iterations. Has it lost currency internationally? It has, absolutely. After Libya, I, I think it's very unlikely that the Security Council is going to be putting a lot of R2P language into, into its resolutions. Uh, I think we need, to, I mean, what it maybe is a, as a role for us is a, think, a way to think, right? To realize mm. there are two countervailing uh norms to countervailing duties we have one is to respect people's self-determination the other is to prevent the worst kinds of crimes and we just have to do our best to see if we can identify which ones need our uh our attention and then to at least try and justify cases where we don't intervene and uh, that's we're never going to get all that right all the time and it's hard to predict the future as the postmodern uh you know performance artist yogi berra said mm. uh, but it's uh, prediction is difficult especially about the future sure. uh, but um but again these competing considerations are why international relations are so tricky Graham, thanks a million for coming into us. Graham Finley there. You are listening to The Moncrief Show on Newstalk. We're going to take a break after that. How a chimp applies first aid. Moncrief on Newstalk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.